I like that, that phrase about if you want to stay high for 65 minutes. Because the, the, what I want to talk about is um, the purpose of staying high. I mean, would that, that uh, high as an end to itself. I remember, uh, uh, many of us probably remember, uh, that um, there was a, 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 an important turn in uh, uh, the consciousness of the community from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. And it comes to my mind organized about around Ram Das talking about uh, discovering ways in which one could become high, so to speak. Not so to speak, high <laughs> in the sense of an altered state of consciousness that was expansive, that realized in that altered state of consciousness the extraordinariness of life, the awesomeness of creation, the fact that there's nothing separate from anything else. So I am remembering from all the, the descriptions that people had of, gave of altered states of consciousness that were cultivated through the use of medicinal plants um, in the 60s and in the 70s. And the line from Ramdas where he talked about the use of uh, psycho psychotropic plants to, or a psychotropic drug that was uh, 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 engineered in order to, uh, to allow the mind, not create a, 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 a non-existing mind state, a non-existent reality, but to allow the mind to uh, recognize what everybody felt was the largest kind of reality in which uh, the, uh, the arising and passing away of phenomena are seen in the largest possible context. And at one point he said uh, that his own search of a guru in uh, India and the beginning of a meditation practice was, he said, because no matter how high he got, he came down, so I went to find a guru. And for a long time, um, it was not as clear to me as it is now uh, that there's an end to that sentence, that the purpose is not to stay high, but to become in that expanded place in order to see what's most widely true, that this life that's unfolding is unfolding in the midst of all these other lives in a way that's lawfully uh, connected to them, in a way that impacts all of the other lives, that in a way that inspires me in my individual life to both be grateful for my life and to contribute to the, uh, the, 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 the communal life of this whole world of people and this whole planet itself, <laughs> that there's an end to it. It's not staying, getting high because it's fun. It's getting high because it allows for that vision that supports the individual life inevitably challenged as it is. So there's a reason to go to a movie and see fifth grade children ballroom dancing because it delights the heart. And when the heart is delighted, it's able to take in a larger uh, understanding of how things could be. When the heart's delighted, it feels good about people. It wishes well. It realizes that wishing well is a potential of human beings. And that when I, when I am wishing well, when my own heart is expansive, I feel happy. The more I know that, the more I am dedicated to those kind of practices that keep my heart expansive. The shift 30 years ago was from thinking that you needed an external supplement to the natural ardor in order to have that happen. I remember, I, I, in fact, here's a, 
I didn't imagine I was going to do this disclosure. Once in my life, I took LSD. It was fabulous. It was a really wonderful experience. Some people have bad experiences. That experience was a great experience. It was extraordinary and magical and very much like the yellow submarine, which I had not so long before that seen. After it, I never wanted to do it again. It was too extraordinary. It made me too peculiar for a long time afterwards. <laughs> Couldn't really screw myself back together. I have, I have sensitive neurology. I didn't want to live out of, out of myself. I wanted to live connected to this world. But I was very glad that I'd had it. It was amazing. And I remember telling my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who was visiting and teaching in the Bay Area not long after, I, and uh, I told him about my experience. And uh, my teachers being 10 years younger than I and coming up more in the 10 years younger in the 60s had more experience with that sort of thing than I did. But uh, I was kind of proud of myself, I think, for I was too old to be hip. That was the hippest thing that I'd done. And so, uh, so I told Joseph about it, and I told him about the extraordinariness of the vision that, that I had had, and mostly about the extraordinary feelings of, of well-wishing that were part of that expansive consciousness. And I got all finished, and he said, you know, you could have the same experience from meditating. And I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's partly, so partly it was a carrot, you know, at the end of the stick to, I went, really, really, you could? <laughs> Okay, here I am. But, uh, and so it's true, and you can. And it's also true that in the 25 years or so since then, I've had some dramatically altered mind states sitting on my zafu that were filled with rapture and light and uh, uh, sublime feelings in the body. Remarkable. And they have not been anywhere near as fulfilling as the periods of completely contented mind connected to this world, sitting, knowing this world is this world and my life is my life, and feeling the mind rest in that and say, it's okay. That's the best feeling I've ever had. Mm. That, along with the feeling of really wishing for everyone else that they could have that same feeling of, it's really okay. That wishing people peace of mind. I wish you peace when we say to people, shalom. Salam alaikum. Peace be with you. That's really the best thing that we could say to people. And to feel it in myself is the best thing. And to think about spiritual practice as leading both to the insight that promotes that, the wisdom that promotes that, and the habit system that supports that, is what I think about all the spiritual practices. There are five spiritual practices in this uh, latest edition of uh, the tricycle that have come out. But really they amount to two. They amount to the practice of cultivating wisdom through paying very close attention moment to moment to what's happening and not fighting with it. In this tradition we call it mindfulness, just being with what's there, not insisting that it being other. There's a wonderful line from... Uh, uh, Tara, who recently died, an old uh, Sri Lankan monk and writer, who said, mindfulness is non-coercive. It does not insist of the moment that it be other than what it is. It's like this, and not fighting with it. It's like this, and changing it, if you can, 
and if it should be, but not being mad at it for being what it is. It's cultivating a heart that meets every moment as a friend. It's an easy thing to say. It's not that hard to do, because moments arrive as friends do, often with challenge. I have a friend whose current practice is uh, loving-kindness on the email, and he does it in this way. When he opens his email every day, as you, know, you all do, as I do, what's your feelings? you open the email? It says, you have 37 emails. And you think, ah, oh, last night I had two. Where did those 35 other ones come from? It's not always I think, oh, boy, 35 people wrote to me. It says, yeah, it's interesting to see how the heart, maybe you feel that way. He says he opens the email, and as he goes down, he looks at each one, and he makes a prayer for himself. May I open this email and absorb its contents with the most um, kind and uplifted heart that I can. Then he opens the email, he reads it, and sometimes emails, like events in life, have one of three uh, valences. They either are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So, so this great news happened. I'm inviting you to do this. I am offering you this. And the heart picks, whoa, look at that. That's great. That's pleasant. Now, okay. And the heart gets very excited. We open another email, and it says, where is your uh, article that was due last week? And, <laughs> and your heart falls down about that because you actually didn't plan the article yet, and you don't know what you're going to say about it. So the heart falls down about that. And then there's another email that says... Um, that is long-winded, and uh, you can't quite get what it's getting at, and it's sort of tedious to get through, and you don't know one way or the other. He says he reads the email, and he has the momentary uh, urge to answer it, the uprising urge to deal with it, either to say, hooray, or uh, I really am going to be there next week with the article, or I don't know where you're meaning to go with this, that the urge to respond comes right away. He said his practice is to wait a minute before answering, take a breath, and say to himself, may I respond to this in a way that will work for the benefit of myself and for the people who have sent me this email, which is actually the Buddha's advice to Rahula. Before every moment of action, just reflect, is what I'm about to do for the well-being of all beings, and then do it. And he assures me that it does not take him significantly longer to do his email than it used to before he did this practice. But two things are true. He makes less mistakes in answering the email, doesn't respond out of impulse as much as he used to do, and he's less tired when he's finished with the email. As a matter of fact, he's a little bit lifted up from having blessed everyone, including himself, with every possible email. go back because I can't remember how I got to this place. Uh, how to keep the mind expansive enough so that you remember what's important um, and the practices that support that. And I said there are two kinds of practices, the practice of paying attention and the practice of wishing well. My friend in those practices, has, in his email practice, has combined both of them. I'll tell you another practice that I do that, in which I combine both of them. It's also an email practice. These make these. The Buddha did not teach either of these practices. <laughs> I want to go back, though. I want to talk about 
I'll go back and then I'm going to end up by telling you my current practice. That, uh, that, by the way, since you know the person whose practice it is, and I'm telling you, is Donald's practice. That, did you know that that's Donald's practice? Did he tell you that, that he has that practice? He, did, he gave you that homework to do. Are you doing it? Yeah, is it good? It's very good. How many people are doing Donald's email practice? There you go. No, 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 that was five, six people doing it. I have started to do it. I have another email practice, I'll tell you right away. But I want to make sure that I stay with the, 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 the idea of why would we get the mind high? Why would we relax? Why would we cultivate stillness? Why would we cultivate delight on the top of it and appreciation and joy? What, what are the insights? So the three th- two things I want to talk about. What, what are the truths that I want to see for which I need the most expansive mind? How would I be if I saw those truths? And what can I do to support the continual seeing of those truths? So three things. This is what the Buddha taught. He said there are three things that are true, uh, just true. Uh, they're not Buddhist truths or parochial truths. They're truth truths. And what, they, what in, in Buddhism they're called as the three characteristics of experience. The three of them are that every moment of experience is ephemeral. It arises as a result of causes. It is changing as it arises, and it passes. No experience lasts. They are the the um, the Hebrew for it is gamzeya avor. It's one of the um, maxims or proverbs. Also, this will pass. The Buddha said it just before he died. He said. Uh, as his penultimate sentence, according to scripture, everything that arises passes away. Transient are all conditioned things, is another translation. My sense that we all, is that we all know that in a certain way. We see something coming in the distance, and then it arrives, and then it's gone. Uh, I did have my 50th wedding anniversary party this weekend. People came from our life from long ago. Relatives came from far away. Friends came from far away. Some friends from near, my family from near. Um, I was in a very extremely high mood all weekend because people started to arrive Thursday. They started to celebrate on Friday. We had 26 or 28 hours of a celebration of a Sabbath on during and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. So by the time that finished Saturday night, that was enough. And then Sunday night, we had an enormous party for everybody. So by the time we got to Sunday night, my mind was quite in an expanded and uh, otherworldly way. And the reason I tell you that is in that expanded way, everything is really all right. There had been a lot of planning for the party that happened in Nevada at one of my son's and his wife's house. And when we started to plan it six or eight or ten months ago, uh, Trish said, you know, it's very windy in Nevada at night in uh, June. I said, no, no, I said, it's, you know, it's summer, it's okay. She said, no, no, it's really very windy. It's very windy. It's windy, I'm telling you, it's windy. And uh, so, But, you know, how windy can it be? It's June, you know, it's warm. So I think we should have a tent. Everybody said, no, nah, what do we need a tent? I said, you know, it's June. You know, I'll be happy if the sun is set and it's not too hot. So I agreed. Let's get a tent, though. It seemed like a good idea. Phew, about getting a tent. Because what happened, the celebration was a dinner that happened under the tent with you know, beautiful tables, all lovely decorated. And the dinner was 
preceded by four young women musicians, students at the San Francisco Conservatory playing an hour of chamber music. So it was a concert followed by dinner. And the concert was meant to be down on the lawn, but it turned out the lawn was a cyclone of wind. Kind of wind. So it moved it into the tent. The, mu- the musicians in the tent had to have clothespins holding their music. And, and it was blowing. And the people were, by that time, from having stood around a little bit waiting for this change to happen, everybody was cold. So somehow... My family ran through the house, and people were sitting huddled in blankets. They brought blankets, they brought cloaks, they brought coats. So here are all these people in fancy dress clothing, huddled in blankets. The wind goes down as the evening proceeds, so that by 9.30, or by 9, when we started to eat, it was really, uh, it was warming up a little bit. But, and it ended very quietly, it became serene, but... At one point in the middle of the concert, here were all these four women playing away diligently. And at interludes, the wind would whistle through this tent, and the tent poles would creak. (laughs) I was sitting right next to the players and right in the middle and looking up at the light fixture that was in the middle of the tent. And at at several points, the wind would come so strongly, and you'd feel the flaps straining and the poles straining, and you see this big chandelier swaying and the wind really straining. And I thought to myself, what if this tent picks up at this point and flies away? Because it sounded like it could. Uh, and knocks over all these tables that have been set in this careful way with dishes and glassware and pictures and decorations. And I thought to myself, what if this all picks up and flies away? And I thought to myself, if it picks up and flies away, the food is cooking inside, we'll all get up, we'll take our plate, we'll go inside, and we'll have a buffet standing up. It'll be fine. And I was so interested in the way it was completely fine with me. The whole thing could pick up and fly away. It's a banal thing to think, you know, to think about, because there are much worse things to irritate the mind. But I was so pleased to see that there was nothing that could annoy my consciousness at that point. This one didn't come at the last minute. That's fine. They didn't come. They're just not there. It didn't. It was an. It didn't become. How come they didn't come? I, uh, they just weren't there. And or the tent might fly away. Tent might fly away. But this wasn't. Then, I, as we sat down to eat the meal when the musicians were finished, I realized that it was I who had said, "It'll probably be very hot. Let's have chilled gazpacho as the first course." <laughs> To everybody huddling in the blankets is eating the chill <laughs> The second course, however, was warm and it worked out. <laughs> but I tell you that whole story, first of all, to share with you because Susan said this morning about it, and it's you know, just a big event in my life. So to tell you two things about it, one was the story about in an expansive enough consciousness no plan fails everything is a success and the other thing is to say that it happened in about 30 seconds is 50 years you know it doesn't seem like 50 years I don't know what 50 years is supposed to seem like but this doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like long it seems like yesterday you know just a few events and a few getting up and lying down and getting up and lying down and it's 50 years later so that awareness of uh, of the ephemeral nature of things which the Buddha said is the first thing that we're supposed to really get who doesn't get that? everybody gets it however old you are you're older than when you were young 
however vigorous we are, probably we were much more vigorous at 16 or 18 or 10. Everybody knows, and I forget. I think we all forget from time to time. I forget when something is happening and I get mad at it, it should be happening this way and I'm upset. If I think about this upset that comes up, because upset comes up, we all get alarmed or dismayed or distressed or annoyed or indignant. If I say to myself, this is a a very small event in the sphere of the whole life, in the context of the whole life, I got annoyed at something not so long ago in terms of some family event, not this one. And my, my daughter, whom you met last week, went by me and said in my ear, she said, Mom, this is two hours out of a whole life. And it seemed like such a, like a piece of wisdom, like the Buddha could have said that. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, right. It's like, get a grip. This is two hours out of a whole life. Two hours out of a whole life is nothing. It's a mayfly, you know? But if I remember that then it puts things into a perspective. But there's something much more important to me. When I was younger, I think, the fact that uh, knowing about the passage of time meant I wouldn't have to struggle with whatever it was forever was the most important thing about knowing. Actually, now, knowing about the passage of time, the most important thing about knowing about the passage of time is knowing that this moment isn't going to happen again. And it's become so much more important for me not to waste a moment of my life at this point in some sort of adversarial situation with my life or my people. I haven't got a moment to lose. I didn't have a moment to lose when I was 20 either, but coming on 69, soon coming on 70, really don't have a moment to lose. I think I only have, it's like an on and off switch. I have two possibilities in this moment. I can embrace my life with enthusiasm and be grateful for it, or I can be mad at it. And I figure I am mortgaging away valuable moments, any moment that I choose to make as an adversary in my life. There's a a Buddhist um, prayer about, may I be free of enmity. And uh, it, um, it imagines, I think, it, it's thinking about enmity towards people. I want to be free of enmity towards moments, enmity towards anything. I want to be free of enmity, period. If, when I am in an adversarial situation with anything, I am isolated and I'm alone and fearful. And when I'm not, when I'm connected, I feel loved, um, not separate not lonesome, valuable. So the first thing that the Buddha, of the three things that keep the heart in a buoyant way is knowing about the passage of the, the ephemeral nature of things. The second is knowing that that adversarial struggle with anything is what causes suffering. That does not mean that there aren't things in, the, in our lives that happen that we wouldn't rather not have happening, or things in the world that we wouldn't rather have different, or that we shouldn't make an effort to change it. Nobody, I think, has said it better than Reinhold Niebuhr in the Serenity Prayer. It is Niebuhr, isn't it? Who said, may I have the strength to change what I can change. No, wait a minute. The courage to change, courage to change what I can change, the strength to endure what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the Thank you very much. So the courage to change what I can, the serenity to accept what I can't, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you very much. And it is Nippur. I'm going to quote it right away. So I, okay, good. Uh, there's a certain way in which we know that, that struggling with what we can't change increases the suffering. But uh, nevertheless, I struggle and I suffer for it. It's a habit of the mind. And it seems to me that part of spiritual practice is to recognize that habit and then have the intention to decondition that habit. And I, get to, I don't get to practice it except when I am challenged. I am challenged and then I can practice that habit of saying, well, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. What should I do now? That seems to me one of the maxims that's, made, that's given me the most support in my whole life. You know, here I am, and it's 50 years. It's 50 years this year that I'm married. It's 49 that I graduated from college. I think, what did I learn in these 49 years? I learned that if you struggle with things you can't change, you suffer. I struggle anyway, but I learned that it really is important to me to recognize that that's the edge of practice and that I could not struggle. In those moments where I don't struggle, where I act to make a difference, but I do so in a not adversarial way, then I can do it happily, and I can feel of value to myself and of the world. I feel benefit to all beings. The third of the things that we're meant to see, if we were high and expansive enough to see it, is that nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything happens conditioned by everything else, and everything conditions everything else. The fact that I'm here, the fact that I stayed married so long, I was really clear about this is no great feat on my part, you know? It's really the karma of this, the particular good karma of this particular relationship. I mean, I think that we made effort, the two of us, to do this together. But the fact that we made effort isn't even our merit. We made effort because we came from families that made effort and from traditions that said you're supposed to make an effort in the earliest years. Some, we're talking with a group of people, which were the hardest years of your marriage? So somebody said the first 10, someone said the first 3, someone said the first 38. <laughs> but nobody said I never had heart. <laughs> or the middle 10, or the years my child was sick, or the years my parents were dying, or the years that the, we, we, we both of us didn't have a job, or these or those or the other. It's not, nobody's is without conflict. In the hardest years of, of our relationship, where we're in the beginning, it never occurred to us that there was a possibility of doing something else, so we didn't. Uh, so that was actually the karma of living a long time ago, being born a long time ago, where that didn't occur. By the time it occurred to us, we worked out some of those things. The other part of the karma is everybody had good health. The other part of the karma is my children had good health. The other part of the karma is we were both employed, so we, we weren't struggling for money except in the very beginning and after that. So it's a lot of a lot of very serendipitous events that supported it. More meeting good friends and meeting the Dharma thirty years ago for the both of us was a very big piece of that. And you think of the karma of that, you know, I think to myself uh, who told me um, Betty Kuhn where is she Betty was here early this morning are you here Betty yeah Betty's still here Betty was saying 
You know, I'm, Betty lives in Santa Fe. She was driving down St. Francis Drake Boulevard yesterday on her way out to the ocean, thinking, well, I'll go to Point Reyes, uh, I'll go to uh, Samuel P. Taylor and I'll camp, and then I'll go to the ocean, and she's going to continue driving up to the Pacific Northwest tomorrow. And, and all the years that she's heard about Spirit Rock and heard about what we do here, uh, she said, but I didn't know where it was. So yesterday, I'm driving out on St. Francis Drake Boulevard <laughs> on my way to Samuel P. Taylor to the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. So, oh, so drives in and sees that this is happening this morning, and she's here. So you can, sometimes you think about nothing happens without intention. I didn't have an intention of coming here, but the karma, the intention was to go somewhere else. But then something else happened on the way, and she's here. I actually was minding my business doing my life, and my husband went to a retreat. What happened is that the 60s happened, and people started to get high, and then they started to meditate, and then they started to talk about enlightenment and peace of mind. And uh, my husband went to a retreat, and he came home and said, you should go. And I went, not because I was particularly interested in meditating, but because part of my thing is you try to please people. They say, go to this. I'd like it if you went. <laughs> then I go. I'm very congenial like that. So. <laughs> and then my teachers said the Four Noble Truths, and they taught about what the Buddha taught, and they taught about the possibility of peace. And so that's, you know, but I wouldn't have gone had he not, had he not this, had he not that. Nothing happens without a whole bunch of things happening to condition it. It's not a possibility ever to say, I did this by myself. It's most, so clear to me that uh, as a way of understanding that there isn't anyone who's separate from anything else. This is, <laughs> this is happening, but not because there's an I who did it. It couldn't be another way. I thought to myself, when I feel really clear about it, I think to myself, it's so clear that everything conditions everything else. And I think, well, I couldn't have been here. I wouldn't have been here were it not for uh, my husband being interested in uh, the idea of enlightenment and meditation and pushing me. But I also couldn't be here without the fact that my mother particularly taught me to be congenial. People want you to do something, you do it. So that, uh, or, my, or the fact that I have fairly congenial genes or the fact that I'm interested in most things. People, if somebody came tomorrow, I, I said this the other day, I said, I have a kind of mind that jumps at things. I don't, you know, it, maybe if I wanted to be critical of it or give it a kind of a label, I could say it's a lust mind, but I could say it's an interested mind. Or curious. If someone came tomorrow and said, you know, there's a, um, there's a particular eclipse of the uh, sun that's going to happen from somewhere in the South Pacific the day after tomorrow at 3 in the morning. But there's a flight. We could go to Fiji, and I just happen to have tickets. Would you go? I would go. Wouldn't you go? <laughs> For a three-minute event in the middle of the... A three-minute event in the middle of the ocean that you could watch on CNN on television the next day. But if someone said, well, who would go? Would you go? <laughs> who wouldn't go? Yeah, people say, you know, I saw it already, I'll see it on it. But, you know, I, I have the kind of thing that, the mind that jumps at things. Maybe it's just lust, but I'm interested in stuff. Okay, you went there, I'll go there. You do this, I'll do that. It's all karmically determined. But not necessarily because of intention. I want to get enlightened. Uh, mostly, I met people who looked peculiar to me. That, that, well, I don't know, mostly. I, my, my, the vision we had, Aggie told me that we met 25 years ago 
in a and, and now today so 25 years have passed um, at the College of Marin where I was teaching transpersonal psychology and we were beginning to talk about altered states and mostly at that time we talked about people having special powers as a result of altered states and we saw films about and I actually saw in person people who could concentrate so hard that the pencil on the table they could cause it to roll to the side and roll off or the someone who could take a needle and stick it through their arm without flinching because they would concentrate so hard or I remember Uri Geller starting watches by do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. You remember bending spoons, bending spoons <laughs> by looking at them making a taking a big pile in this is in the in the Marin Civic Center auditorium the audience was invited to bring clocks or wristwatches that weren't working. This isn't a time when we still ticked, you know, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> you know, nobody's wristwatch ticks anymore. But anyway, so you, uh, they made a big pile of defunct clocks and watches. And uh, I, I suppose they passed the microphone over them because it was all quiet, because then he concentrated. And then they passed the microphone. He had tick, 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 tick. <laughs> so he started watches and putting the needles and um, rolling the pencils off the side of the table. And what seemed really important was paranormal powers. We talked about people who could levitate, saw films. It, it, it later became clear to me that the, the most extraordinary power is the power to keep the mind and the heart peaceful. And that's what I wanted more than that other stuff. But we met on those, in, the, in, those, in those circumstances. So everything is part of the karma of, of unfolding. I needed to do that in order to find that this was what I really wanted. So here are those three things, knowing that, knowing that everything passes, knowing that struggle makes things worse, and knowing that nothing happens by itself. Everything happens in connection with everything else. Near karma, it's called proximal karma and distal karma. When I was sitting this morning quietly, I was thinking to myself, is that true? I was thinking about events in my life that had to have happened for me to have been here. First, I had to have been born, etc. In the largest sense, I have to have gone to school. But is there anything that happened? I remember that I, was, I had gotten my master's degree from Berkeley in social work, and I was working as a therapist in San Rafael. And a friend of mine phoned one day and said, do you want to go take a yoga class with me? I had never taken a yoga class. I was 28 years old. Uh, I was 31 by then. I was 31. I hadn't taken a yoga class, uh, but uh, sure, you know, it's like, do you want to go to Fiji day after tomorrow and see an eclipse? You know, most things I want to do. So we went and took this yoga class in the Jewish Community Center in Marin County. Before it was this new, beautiful Jewish Community Center. It was an old building. It was in the gym. It did not have any cosmic vibes. Or tra it had basketball hoops on the corners and, and mats on the floor. And a, and a record player and the, and the teacher who became my yoga teacher was playing records. So, gosh, this day, this really, they, it was 1967, 1967 that this happened. And 
I did an hour of yoga practice, and of, you know, I, I was young, so of course it worked. It's all right. But it wasn't amazing that my body worked because I was young. But at the end of it, uh, the, what happened to me is I really became determined to become a student of that particular teacher. I was very grateful afterwards that she was teaching yoga and not uh, long distance running, I have the wrong body, or uh, other kinds of things. And it wasn't that I, something happened decisively from the yoga or that, that some position caused something amazing to happen to me. I liked her vibe. And I actually knew that she knew something that I didn't know, and I wanted to know it. And so I think to myself, well, I had to have met Maganya. After that, I, uh, uh, since that was, I took the next class a week later and a week later, and then that class ended. And it wasn't at the JCC anymore. I had to go to San Francisco where her studio was. And I went to San Francisco, and her studio was on Powell Street. So as you're taking this noon class, the uh, cable cars are clanking by outside and all the noise was right off Union Square on, on, on uh, Powell Street. And you had to go upstairs, you had to walk in the door, go upstairs past the gym with fitness equipment, everybody working out and huffing and puffing. And you went up another floor and you opened the door and there's incense and bells and gongs and a monkey, and a parrot, live monkey, parrot. <laughs> and I got there and I thought to myself, what am I doing here, you know? I'm, you know, I'm 31 years old, I'm a Marin mother, uh, I'm a psychotherapist, what am I doing here? People do funny breathing. <laughs> How did I get here? But, you know, I'm already there and I'm already parked and I take the class. And every week I'd have to go through this. What am I doing here? And then I'd stay, and at the end of the time I'd feel great. And so then I come back again. I walk in. I thought, What am I doing here? <laughs> Drapes and bells and gongs. And the strangest thing of all was Maganya saying things like, "Let your consciousness, let your attention rest in your knee." How can my attention be in my knee? <laughs> Put your consciousness in your belly. And the consciousness in the belly—that's a weird thing to say. But the idea that consciousness is pervasive, that it's not in your head. The idea that we've, we experience this life with our whole of us, that thinking is one of the six sense doors, thinking and smelling and hearing and seeing and feeling and tasting are the other five, that our whole of our being experiences this life. And with this whole of this being, mindfully, we be paying attention. We discover what's true. So, and again, through that path, discovering that what's true is that the heart can relax, that peace is possible. See, the, the three characteristics or experience are what is true in terms of you can see this in every moment. But I think that there's a greater truth that arises as a result of seeing that. If I really had that wisdom intact and it stayed there, this moment will pass. This is the only moment in which I can act. If I struggle, I'll make it worse. If I act without struggle but with clear intention, I could make it better. If I And I need to act because everything is connected to everything. It's not possible in this life for me to opt out of a connected acting life because that also makes a difference. Not acting is an action in a world that is begging for input. It's not possible for me, awake, to not 
be putting something into it. I think that's true for everyone. I don't think it's because I'm a particularly good person. I think it's because the mind and the heart, when it sees what's true, are called into service. So that's the point of seeing that. So if we go back to get high, it's to make the mind in an expansive enough space so that it sees what's true, so that it sees what's really true, and so that it sees what's really demanded of us. Maybe what I, needs to be put on, on on the end of that is to see what's true is that it's ephemeral, that struggle is a result, suffering is a result of struggle, that nothing happens in a vacuum. To see that it's through really knowing that deeply that we discover it's possible, it's possible to live peacefully in a life that's inevitably challenged. And to also see that it's inevitably difficult to maintain that peace, but that there are ways to keep the peace. The most obvious, from everything that I've said, way to keep the peace is to return the mind to an expansive enough place so that it remembers what's true. So it makes a whole circle around. So you can think of spiritual practice as a way of remembering what's true. So there's a way of thinking about the kinds of spiritual practices, the contemplative practices, where we just make ourselves quiet for a while. We have a, a sabbatical of the mind where we're not doing something so that what we know is most deeply true recalls itself to us. There's the way of behaving as if we remember what's true. If I think, if I knew what was true now, I would fe- be feeling connected in love to my life. I wouldn't be struggling with it so much. So how about beginning by wishing well to myself and to everyone that I see at this moment? That reviving, the re- it's like artificial respiration of the heart. You pump it. You don't think about what caused it to stop at that point. You just get it going again. How about just getting it going again by the practice of wishing well? And I think that you keep it there with the practice of gratitude which is the practice of acknowledging that this is possible, I know how to do it, and thank goodness, I can. And so now I will tell you the other email practice, which is the one that I have. I email Carol every day, and I tell her what I'm grateful for that day, and Carol emails me back every day. And when we started that practice two years ago, in the beginning it was easy because... uh, uh, we'd known each other for 20 years, but not intimately, taught with each other from time to time, and she lives on the other end of the country. So it wasn't so hard to say, uh, it's spring, and uh, the daffodils, or the deer, or the baby deer, or the swallows <coughs> are building their nests again in the same place that they did last year. And uh, I'm grateful for the, for the way that nature unfolds in this beautiful way. Inevitably, if we're both honest with each other and doing it every day, comes the nights that I get on the email, and it's been not such a good day, and I'm challenged, and I really need to write. I'm so grateful that you're on the other side of this email because I can tell you I'm in a really bad shape, and I'm annoyed at half the people in my life, and I had all kinds of disagreeable <laughs> things happen today, and I realize that my mind is in a funk about it, and I'm, suff- I'm suffering because of the funk, and that if I could put it down, I would, but I can't, and I'm struggling, and I'm suffering. And I realize this is not spiritual. I'm trying to be spiritual about it, but it's not working. <laughs> so I'm glad that you exist in the world so I can tell you about it. And in the telling, to have my mind relax. 
to realize that in the telling, which includes the recognition that there's someone in this world who is holding me on a day-to-day basis in a caring connection, makes a space wide enough for me to tolerate this particular difficult mind state of the moment, gives me a chance to think about other options for my life. This was a difficult day, but tomorrow's another day. This was a difficult day. My colleagues were getting on my nerves, but I love them. They're the most marvelous people in the world. This was a difficult day. My partner of 50 years still has not gotten it that I don't like when he does this and this and this. But the truth is he has a million other characteristics that I do like. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed with him 50 years. So, But I have to remember that. I need to stretch my mind outside of the parameters of where it's gotten caught in suffering. And the practice of gratitude is how it gets there. Of all of those practices, the practice of remembering what to be grateful for, trying to be grateful in order to restore the heart, and the practice of remembering what's true in order to restore the heart, the practice that I think is most important is the practice of behaving as if your heart were restored before it is. That the practice of relating to this moment in kindness until you get to actually feel the compassion that promotes the kindness is the way to get it going. The others count and they support it, but for me, act as if until you get there, gets you there faster. I'm thinking about the fact that um, I've been telling my colleagues, uh, uh, this is a lot of talk about numbers these days. I'm married 50 years. I'm going to be 70 years old a year from this summer. Spirit Rock is planning a big birthday party. uh, So this big numbers talk is happening. And I've been saying, you know, I think I should have to stop. I'm going to have to stop teaching soon because I know less and less. I used to know a lot of things. (laughs) I don't know so much anymore. I actually know that it's possible to be kind whether or not you feel like it, and that if you do it, you feel like it. That's it. And that's like the beginning and the end of 30 years of Dharma practice. And it's not very very, um, elaborate, or it's not very... um, um, it ought to be more amazing than that, and so more dignified than that. And thinking about the fact that when Aldous Huxley was uh, dying, remember he had done all this research on, on uh, uh, altered mind states and the use of uh, mind-altering drugs and the use of meditation. He was a great student of philosophies and religions of the world. And as he was actually dying, people asked him, what is the thing you know most of all, Aldous? What do you know for sure? And he said, what I know for sure is that we should all be a little bit more kind. So that's about it, I think, when we finish. That was a pretty elaborate discussion to get up to it, but I think that's where it is. What it works, how it works, I think, is that the act of kindness is the act of connection. In doing an act of kindness, we connect ourselves to this life. Even if it's an act of kindness to oneself, acknowledging my own difficulty. 
I say to myself, Sylvia, you're having a really hard day. It's not just get over it, go be kind to somebody else. It's just, Sylvia, you're having a hard day. Actually, I don't say, Sylvia, you're having a hard day. I say, sweetheart, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Does it make you laugh when you say that? I do. <laughs> I do. Sometimes I say, I'm in pain. <laughs> because, you know, our naturally compassionate hearts, when I am not, when I'm not, when I'm so caught up in my drama of my story, when I have lost the story of life, when I've lost the story of the world, I am in pain. I am in pain. Connected is the only way that I am safely at home in myself and in this world. I think a lot. Um, remember when we finished the meditation this morning, I said, hold hands. It feels good to feel connected. I think that that's the whole of it. I want to end it feeling connected either in actual fact or in my heart. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 8, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.